Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Daniel, and we're in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 and going to verse 16. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, his spirits was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word, will, uh, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Ariok, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Ariok, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Ariok made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Amen. You may now be seated. All right. Good morning, everybody. Awesome to see you this morning. My name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here at Stonehouse Church, and we are engaged in a 10-week series called A People Planted. Our series began three weeks ago, two weeks ago. We're on week three. I don't even know how to say that. We're on week three. So um, we are continuing to look at Daniel as kind of an example of what it's like to live in a godless culture. Um, I've said it every week so far, and I'll continue to say it again. These series, are, In this series, the sermons kind of lining up one after the other is, is, is quite important, and it would be really helpful uh, for all that information to kind of come together uh, as we walk through it. Um, and so we've got those online and available for you to listen to, or you can search for Stonehouse Church sermons on iTunes um, and uh, check out the first two weeks that we've done so far. I want to summarize those weeks as, as, as good as I can and do that quickly to help us get ready for what we're talking about this week. Um, I also want to repeat uh, an announcement or two uh, that Sarah mentioned at the beginning of service. Our city groups are up and going. Uh, previous, we were saying we had two groups on Monday and one group on Wednesday. Now we are saying we have one group Monday, one group Tuesday, and one group Wednesday because one of the groups scooted from Monday to Tuesday night. So wanted to let you know that the group that is kind of west from here is meeting Tuesday nights now. Um, and so Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday are all available. More of that information is up on the website. Please email info at StonehouseFL if you have questions about that or just seek somebody out and ask. Um, I also want to mention, re-mention the baptisms. So we've done this before. We're going to do it again this spring. Um, spring? I don't know when spring is here in Florida. So, because to me it was yesterday. Um, so uh, spring sometime when the weather gets warm, probably just after uh, daylight saving time begins to kind of better align the clock. We're going to do sunset baptisms um, and uh, kind of couple that with a church picnic out at the beach. Really fun time to gather together, enjoy food, enjoy one another's company, uh, take in a sunset together and baptize folks. So if you're somebody who has questions about baptism and what we believe about that, uh, if you've never been baptized and, and think, man, is that something I should 
do. I mean, I've heard about it. I, I think I read a Bible verse about a guy named John or something. And so if, if that's kind of a curiosity to you, we'd love to talk about it. Um, it's not us saying, hey, if you haven't been baptized, dang it, do it. You know, it's just us saying, let's have a conversation. It's possible that the Lord would lead you to do that in response to what he's done. His baptism is just sort of an outward expression or reflection of what's happened inside of our hearts and that we've been made new. We've been changed uh, by God's work, and that's how we view baptism. So please uh, feel free to reach out and let us know. More than likely, that uh, event will happen toward the end of March. Uh, we'll try to pin down a real date in the near future. Uh, so that's all I've got to repeat about announcements. Like I said, we've got a, an awful lot of work to do this morning. I hope we can get to it all. Um, so let's just pray, and let's let's beg God for his help. Um, Father, we, we come humbly to you this morning. Um, really just thankful and in awe of, of the love that you've shown us um, as we continue to get a grasp on the, 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 the condition of the world um, and, and even the condition of, of ourselves, um, we realize how great and how far and how deep and, and how significant the pursuing love of God is that you have chosen and willed and uh, to a great cost of your own self you have you have loved an unlovable people uh, and that's just it's awe-inspiring God to know that 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 perfection has overwhelmed imperfection that righteousness has clothed unrighteousness that holiness has has moved toward unholiness that you are a good loving powerful creative God and that we've rebelled against you and you haven't left us to ourselves. That great story matters so much to every single matter of every single day of our entire lives. And God, it matters so much to how we then view the world and, and conduct ourselves here. So God, we ask, please, would you transform our hearts again by the power of your word that you would open our minds and our hearts uh, to really see Jesus and, and, and what it is that he has enacted through his life and through his death and through his resurrection. God, we are helpless to do this on our own. I am utterly helpless to speak these things on my own. Um, we are desperate for your spirit to invade this place, um, to move in us so that we might see the truth. So help us to do that, Lord. Help us to engage as you engage us. We thank you. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for building us as your people here in St. Pete. Would you continue to do so for Christ's glory and our good? In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So over the last two weeks, we've said that there's a greater story uh, going on. And we saw, especially in Daniel chapter 1, that even the great evil that had befallen Daniel and his friends and his entire country, that even in the midst of that, we saw that it was the Lord God who gave those people into a wicked king's hand. And we wrestled through the difficulty of that theological statement and, and how far-reaching it is because it says a lot about the trouble I find myself in now. The hardship that you find yourself in now, the fatigue, the weariness of soul, the anxieties and fears that are in your life, and, and the world that you look around at and go, man, this place is a massio, right? Like, it, it matters that God has declared himself the ruler over all of history, and it matters dramatically for how we respond to the things that are around us, and it helps us to understand that even in the darkest of times, whether it's personally or collectively or culturally, that even in the midst of the darkest of times, there is a plan, and that God is not shocked and surprised by the goings-on of human beings, but he is actually overseeing all of that. Uh, and knowing that and believing that and being reminded of that truth again and again, because how many of you know it needs reminding, right? It doesn't just stick and stay. We need it Monday, we need it Tuesday, we need it next month, we need it next year. Reminding of that, it helps strengthen us towards the kind of engagement that God envisions for us as his people in a messed up world, right? Because God has not pulled us out of this place, but rather he's sent us into this place. More on that later. And so we know that this greater story is going on and that no matter what is happening in the world around us, that God ultimately is in charge. And the truth of God also helps us then to see the dark times that are happening around us in the proper light. 
We talked about this last week, that the condition of humans in rebellion against God means that there are certain things that we engage in. It's rebellion, it's sin, it's selfishness, it's, it's pride. We engage in those things so long as God has not opened our eyes and given us the grace to see Jesus. And so when we look around the world and we see people sinning, and we see people running from God, and we see people revolting against His good, gracious rule in the world, it makes sense. We go, well, yeah. That's, that's what they do. Even me, somebody who desperately loves Jesus and really wants to please the Lord, I keep doing a lot of that stuff. So how much more so will somebody who has ignored God or is running from God or is scared of God, angry of God, dot, 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 dot. So this really informs the way then that we see the world. And we know that, man, we, uh, like we read from Paul, we once were blank, fill in the blank. So such were some, some of you. We were the idolaters. We were the defilers. We were the rebellious. But what happened? We've been washed. By grace through faith, we've been saved, not of our own doing, but of his work. And we've been put into a whole new life, given a whole new heart, empowered by a whole new spirit that the world does not have. But now we have because of God's gift to us. And now, therefore, we look differently at the world around us, not down our nose in arrogance and self-righteousness, thinking, man, you need to be better like me. Right? We get down on the level with everyone and we say, we together are in need of seeing great grace from a wonderful Savior. It changes the way that we engage with the world, but it also helps us to see that there is a difference in the world. And that as we engage in that difference, we saw last week Daniel did so, his friends did so, we are led towards faithfulness to God. In the midst of a world that tells us all sorts of things that are opposite of what the Word of God tells us, we seek to be faithful to God's Word. We seek to be obedient and to live into the life that He's called us to. And in the midst of that faithfulness, though we're surrounded by a godless culture, we are empowered. And God adds His own Spirit to our, our own efforts to remain faithful. And He enables our faithfulness. Like we saw when Daniel and his friends just ate veggies in water. They were just as strong and striving as all of the other people eating the other food. Um, so we know that God enables our faithfulness. And then also God liberates us into engagement with the culture. Right? God, we are free as his people to actually participate with this world in certain ways so as to show that God is the one who enables our faithfulness. Right? And so we saw Daniel and his friends uh, trained in a godless nation. Uh, they were basically being taught to be enchanters and magicians and Chaldeans. It became a nickname for people that were kind of the dark arts type people of that world. And they, they were in that training and became the best in the midst of it. And that's a mind-numbing, mind-boggling, not numbing, mind-boggling concept to think, man, the stuff that we're surrounded by, God actually liberates us to learn and engage in all of these things and to actually show his faithfulness by rising up and becoming maybe some of the best, right? And leading in certain ways and engaging uh, the world in really meaningful and visible ways. And so if you're tracing with us in uh, this book, we've talked about this book a couple of times. It's, um, it's not entirely being followed, but it's, it's influencing some of what we're talking about. It's called Thriving in Babylon by Larry Osborne. So if you're reading that this week, I think it's chapter 14 that we're, we're touching on some things from that. Um, and then we're also taking a, a little bit of an overview of Daniel 2 and Daniel 3. Um, and again, we're not uh, exegetically walking through every verse of Daniel through this series, but a lot of the story of Daniel and his friends is heavily influencing uh, everything that we're talking about. Uh, and so that's kind of what we're talking about today as we look further into what does it mean to, um, to live faithfully in the mission that God has called us to in St. Pete. Uh, and so really we're, we're looking at engaging our culture in meaningful and visible ways. And so we're taking kind of the last part of last week, that freedom to engage in the culture, and we're kind of expounding that a little bit this week and, um, and kind of fleshing that out. And so by the time we get to the end of this, there's going to be some really, really practical stuff um, that, I, that I hope is helpful for us uh, as we seek to be wise and to engage in this world. And so like we've done the last few weeks, we need a foundation to stand on in order to talk about these things, right? And so the beginning of first, 
of the first week, we talked about God creating the world to glorify himself, and, and so we, we needed that as a, as a theological framework. And then last week, we talked about the truth of salvation and, and what that does to people and how that changes us and makes us different than the world. We needed that theological foundation to move forward. Uh, and now this week, we need a theological foundation to move forward from. And one of the most helpful places to find this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, that's a book written by Paul the Apostle, and it's called 1 Corinthians, but it's actually a second letter to the Corinthians. Um, we don't have his first letter, uh, but we do have his second letter. Um, it's believed that he wrote a total of four letters to the church at Corinth, but we only have two of them. Uh, and so if you really were to name... 1 Corinthians, as it was written, it would be 2 Corinthians, and then 2 Corinthians would be 4 Corinthians, but that would be far too confusing. So therefore, those who canonize Scripture called them 1st and 2nd. Right? Makes sense. So, Paul wrote this second letter, and in this second letter, he clarifies some things. So, all throughout 1 Corinthians, you read Paul say when I, what I wrote in my first letter. So that's how we know it's a second letter. It's right there in the pages, right? So we're not guessing, we're not speculating we know because he says i wrote to you as i previously wrote right so in first corinthians 5 starting in verse 9 he says i wrote to you in my letter okay talking about his first letter not to associate with the sexual immoral with sexually immoral people then there's a dash he says not at all meeting the sexual sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world okay so, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, don't associate with sexually immoral people. So then, the Corinthians distanced themselves from all of the sexual immoral, immoral people. And Paul goes, ah, that's not what I meant. Because if you really did that, right, you'd have to never associate with anybody in the world. That's not what I meant. What I meant was to disassociate with the sexually immoral who say they're following Jesus. Okay, and then he goes on and kind of expounds on that. We're not going to unpack that whole thing. We need the clarification of that first part. And that first part is, if you were told by God to never associate with sinners, with anybody who sins, then you'd have to never associate with anybody. <laughs> right? So that's not the message, right? And clearly Paul teaches that that's not the message. And even more so we see in the life of Jesus, which is our ultimate example, that that can't be the message. Why? Because who's his best friends? Who's his closest companions? Who are the ones that are dearest and nearest and often weeping over him and missing him and desperate to be with him? The sinners, right? So if the one who most clearly ever represents God's will and his intentions is being called a friend of sinners, then therefore we cannot say, I will never associate with sexually immoral people or greedy or idolaters or whatever, right? And so we have a, a, a fundamental understanding of what it means to be in this world and to live among people who might not confess and claim Christ and follow him and pursue him in obedience, right? We know that if we were to disassociate from all those people that we wouldn't, we, we just have to leave the world, right? We'd have to leave the world. And so we know that that is not what God intends. Now, this concept in the New Testament um, and, and it's seen also in the Old Testament, this, this idea of, of kind of being separate to be holy to God. That's, that's really the issue that's misunderstood when we, don't, uh, when we don't understand engagement with the world in a proper way. And so there's two responses or there's kind of two uh, wrong directions that we can go when we consider what does it look like to engage or not engage with kind of a sinful world. And, and the two ideas are summarized by these words. One is sectarianism and one is syncretism, right? And so we have then sectarians and syncretists. Now these aren't political parties, these aren't denominations, these aren't you know anything that you're going to see that label anywhere. But they are words that help to describe what is happening as people either disengage or engage in particular ways. So one at a time, sectarianism and syncretism. Sectarianism is this idea of separating oneself completely from the world so as to remain holy. 
It's the very thing that Paul just wrote against in 1 Corinthians 5. Okay? It's this concept that I, I, I need to, uh, in order to be faithful and true to God, I need to separate myself entirely from the world around me. I, I cannot look anything like the people in this world. Okay? And it's a misheld belief. It's a non-biblical idea. Okay? If you take this idea to its extreme, then you have monks and monasteries and nuns. Right? People who have taken vows of poverty, chastity, blah, blah, blah. Right? They, they've said, because I am seeking to be faithful to God, I will separate myself so much so that I'll actually create another culture out in the country behind fortified walls with different books and music and everything in order to stay holy to God. Right? And it's, it's a complete detachment from the world. And really, a lot of this um, response created an environment that brought about the Reformation. Martin Luther, we talked about the Reformation several weeks ago because it was the 500th anniversary. Martin Luther, one of the greatest ills that he kind of called out in his day was this dividing of the people of God into those who were really dedicated to God and those who were just kind of stumbling their way through lives. And those who were really dedicated to God were the nuns and the priests and the monks. And he was actually studying to be one of them when his eyes were opened to the truth that he should not pursue separating himself entirely from the world because of some of what Paul wrote right there. And he helped us understand that this difference between secularism and, um, uh, and uh, devotion to God, that that kind of divide in the world was often a negative divide that people read in the wrong way. And so there were people who thought they weren't really being faithful to God or true to God because they weren't priests or they weren't monks or they weren't nuns. And he was saying, man, we're all a priesthood. In our workplaces, in our families, in our homes, in our cities, in all the places that we engage with the world, we are the people of God. And so this sectarianism is a, is a response that says, God is holy and he's called me to be holy. So therefore, all of the obligation of, in, uh, of gaining that holiness and keeping that holiness is on my shoulders. And the only way that I can do that is by completely separating myself, right? And it misunderstands the whole call to both holiness and to engagement in the world. And we'll unpack that a little bit more. Before we do that, though, then we'll look at the synchronist idea, right? So you've got sectarianism, which separates itself completely from the world, doesn't want to look a thing like the world, right? And so the monks and the nuns, that's kind of the extreme of it. Um, we might see, like, uh, um, Amish folks as another kind of extreme of that because, you know, like they're kind of preserving that 18th century German culture and not letting all the other, you know, but then there's also kind of just a, a subdued version of it that kind of American evangelicalism sometimes buys into, and that is we just, you know, we need our own brand of things, we need our own music stations, we need our own fit clubs and our own coffee shops and our own, you know, we need not YouTube, but GodTube and, you know, just all these things that we're kind of, we're, we're seeping into that kind of sectarian belief. So the synchronous belief then is that, uh, is just simply blending in with the world entirely so as to be just like them, Okay. So a syncretist then ends up with a life that doesn't look a thing like Jesus at all because they look so entirely like the world. A synchronist believes or, or, or might think that the holiness of God is entirely a spiritual thing and has nothing to do with what we do with our hands and our mouths and our minds and our feet. That the holiness is completely and utterly the work of God and we have absolutely no participation or responsibility in it at all. Right? It takes it to the other extreme where the syncretist says it's all our job. The sectarian says it's all God's job. And the gospel shows us that God has done the complete work but that we by faith participate in that work. Right? It's that middle ground. If you take the syncretist belief to the extreme, you'll have no distinction whatsoever. Essentially, you'll have a non-believer looking just like the world and saying, yeah, there's a God, right? 
completely participating, completely buying into the lies of the world, completely pursuing the idols of this world, while saying, well, yeah, I mean, of course I believe in God. And it making absolutely no difference in the way, shape, and form of how they live their lives, which is why Paul said, I'm not saying to detach yourself from all idolaters, but those who claim to follow Jesus, and then are also still sexually immoral and greedy and swindlers and idolaters and so on and so forth. So this gospel third way then, which releases us into faithful engagement in a gospel culture, understands that, that we are responding to God's work that makes us holy. And in that response, we are free then to be in this world, but not of this world. And you've probably heard that phrase before. And the reason you've heard that phrase before is because Jesus said something that leads us to believe that phrase. And that's in John 17, starting in verse 14. This is in Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's a little bit before he dies and then rises and ascends. And he's praying for the disciples and also, therefore, uh, for all of us who will believe after the disciples. And he says this, I have given them your word and the, word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. Then he says something very important. He prays this to God. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So don't take them out of here, but keep them in the midst of being here. Verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. This passage could take us all day, but we're going to have to be quick. What Jesus did, how Jesus lived, the message he brought and the miracles he wrought were a display of the holiness of God invading a sinful and dark world, right? The holiness of God is this gigantic biblical concept. And we see it established early in Scripture where he's separate from all of the world. And he does things to separate stuff in the world unto himself. The idea of holiness came with this concept of more than just simply morality, right? Most of us, when we think of holiness, we think just good morals, right? But holiness has a wider and a more profound meaning than that. It has to do with God's utter uniqueness in his power and his glory, that there is nothing like him and there never will be anything like him. And that in his uniqueness, he is utterly separate from everything that he has made, but he desires to engage with everything that he has made. And so what does he do? He calls the people out to himself and he says, you've got to be holy. Right? And in the Old Testament, we've got all these laws, we've got this kind of this government that's set up, we've got all these things that happen, and the whole point of some of the stuff is to show the people that God is holy and that to approach him means to come to something that they've never come to before. That's why there was in Levitical laws all these ritual purification things that had to happen because God had set up a temple, a place where his presence dwelt, and he said to the people, you can't come into this temple in the defilement that you're in because you'll die. That's how potent the holiness of God was. Not that it was against us, but that it was so other than us that it would shake us to death if we were to truly engage it. So therefore, all these ritual and ceremonial laws showed the priests, you've got to clean yourself, you can't touch a dead body. You, you know, if somebody sneezed on you and they had a cold, you know, if there was mold in your house, you got to wash it. Like, all these things, and the, the point of them was to show there was, there was a stain on us as humans. And it stained us through sin. And that there needs to be cleansing before we can come to God. Right? And we see that in the early Old Testament. And later on in the Old Testament, uh, Jason preached on this this summer. We see Isaiah, the prophet, have a vision of the temple of God. And he's basically in the presence of God. And he freaks out. He like hits the turf. He's like, ah! Because he knows the presence of God will kill me. He says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I come from a people of unclean lips. He's like... I'm, I'm one of those defiled, dirty sinners beholding a holy God, and I, I'm toast if this is really happening. And what happens, it's amazing. This angel thingy comes down from heaven, 
and takes a hot burning coal and touches it to Isaiah's mouth. And Isaiah gets this experience that nobody else had experienced, and that is that the holiness of God actually goes out toward him. Right? Like all along, the holiness of God was in the temple, and we had to conduct ourselves in a certain way to approach that holiness. Now, all of a sudden, the holiness of God is coming outward, and it's touching Isaiah, and it's cleaning him. Right? The whole idea before was don't be dirty, and then you can come here. Stay clean, and then you can come here. Now, all of a sudden, the idea is the cleanness is leaving the temple and coming to us. And now us dirty and defiled people are cleansed by the holiness coming to us. It's a whole different mindset. And then Ezekiel has a vision too from heaven, and it's a vision of a river. Or actually, I think it's like drops from the temple that turn into a creek, that turn into a river, that rush into the Dead Sea. And then the Dead Sea, which is named the Dead Sea because it's all dead, comes to life. And so he sees a whole new vision of the holiness of God, and that is a vision of renewal and of restoration and of dead things coming alive. And then Jesus, right? What does Jesus do? Jesus angers the right the religious people because he's no longer conducting himself within the ritual purification laws. And not only that, but he's so bold to say he's the temple. Which is basically to say, I'm the glory of God. I am the holiness of God. And what do we see in Jesus? We see lepers who, if you touched one, you're unclean. And you go through a whole process of cleanness so that you can worship again. Jesus touches a leper and what happens? Leprosy goes away. If you and I touched a leper, the leper, the leprosy would be on us. Then Jesus cleanses a woman who's been subject to bleeding for 12 years or something. Another thing that would make him unclean. And what happens? She's healed. And then Jesus walks up to a tomb and talks to a dead man and he responds. <laughs> and a dead man doesn't make Jesus unclean. Or a dead girl, Tabitha, whom or whatever he said to her. The holiness of God now in Jesus has invaded the world and is cleaning people. And at the cross, we see the ultimate cleansing. And it's a reverse of the Old Testament defiling. Because the Old Testament defiling would say, if you touch blood, you have to cleanse yourself. But now blood is cleansing us. The slaying of lambs and rams and goats and so on and so forth was a, was a foretaste of this idea. And that Deuteronomy says that nothing can be cleaned unless it is cleansed through the washing of blood. And Jesus takes this a step further in Mark chapter 7, verse 15. He says there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. A sectarian thinks that there is defilement out there in the world like a flu. And if I get too close to the flu, then I'll get the flu. That's what a sectarian thinks. Broken down, that's what they think. Therefore, I'm going to put on a mask. <laughs> I'm going to run and hide, I'm going to seek quarantine because I do not want defilement. Right? A syncretist thinks there's nothing wrong with the world. I can just jump in and have fun. When we see what Jesus says here in Mark 7, when we see what he did by bringing the holiness of God to us, we see finally that holiness is something that God must do and that he brings it to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that by faith in Jesus, being washed by his blood, his sacrifice for us, that he took the penalty of sin instead of it falling on us. That by that work we are made holy and we are given a new spirit and welcomed into a whole new life, which is to pursue God in faithfulness and obedience to his word. 
to seek holiness. You don't make you holy, but you pursue God after he's made you holy in Jesus Christ. Scripture leads us to see that holiness is not just a matter of the things we do, but it's a matter of what's in our hearts, right? Jesus says it doesn't come from out there, it's from inside. And so the sectarian needs to wake up to the fact that the flu's inside. The flu's inside. And I need to be cleansed. It's not out there going to get me, it's also in here. And I need a new heart. Jesus, give me a new heart. Jesus, wash me. Jesus, cleanse me. Jesus, make me yours. Right? And a syncretist needs to understand that what they do and the way that they engage in the culture shows what's inside of their heart. Tim Keller says this. I believe we read it last week as well. He says, we will have an impact for the gospel if we are like those around us, yet profoundly different and unlike them at the same time time, all the while remaining very visible and engaged. So he says, not sectarian, not syncretist, but a third way, a third gospel way, where we're faithful to God, but we're free to engage in this world. Does that make sense? So how then are we to be made holy by separating ourselves from the world altogether? No. Rather, here's the distinction we separate ourselves from the love of the world. Okay? Now, I'm not talking about John 3.16, for God to love the world that he gave his only son. That's not what I'm talking about. God loved the world, we should love the world. In that sense. We should love people so that they might know Jesus. What I'm talking about is loving the world. Loving worldliness. Loving the systems of the world. Loving the things of the world. Worshiping at the idol temples of the world, feasting at the king's table, so to say, growing comfortable in the things of the world. Not leaving the world, but giving up the love of the world. First John, I would encourage you to read that. <laughs> I'm going to rifle through five verses from First John. It's tremendous what he unfolds about the love of the world. So here's five verses very quickly in succession. First John 2.15 he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So he's distinguishing what is the love of the world. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. 1 John 4, 17, by this love perfected with us, uh, excuse me, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because he is also, uh, because as he is, so also are we in this world. And 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. So there's a walking with God in love that leads us to not love the world. Again, love worldliness. Because to love one is to hate the other. To love God and his righteousness and his good grace and his leading us through his commands to a life of power and of holiness. To, to love those things is to run away from the love of the world. From those things that would lead us to being sexually immoral and greedy and idolaters, and so on and so forth, like Paul mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5. And there's a tremendous little sermon or booklet called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection by a, uh, a Puritan named Thomas Chalmers. If you can read Puritan literature, it's a little difficult, uh, but I would encourage you to read this. But this quote from Thomas Chalmers, take it to the bank because it's true all day long. He says, we know of no other way by which to keep the love of the world out of our heart than to keep in our hearts the love of God. Okay. What you do not need is me here saying, stop loving the world, stop loving the world, stop loving the world. Here's what's bad, here's what's ugly, here's what's wrong, here's what's false. Stop it, stop it, stop it. We're going to point to those things, but what you need more than anything is to me say, here is God. This is Jesus. 
The glory of God is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. He shows us the light of heaven. The kingdom is in his hands. He gave it up for you. This is God. He first loved you before you were ever lovable. You're still not very lovable and he loves you. He loves you. He sacrificed everything for you. He didn't even grasp at being equal with God, but rather turned it over so that he could be a slave to you, your servant, so that you could have life. Love this God. When you are obsessed with and enthralled by and pursuing that God, the, the things in the world that you are called to love all week and all day long, they will pale in comparison. You've struggled with some besetting sin for most of your life and you've been told by preacher after preacher and God forbid, book after book and even song after song, just stop. It hasn't worked. I've been there. I'm still there sometimes. Set your mind on things above. Whatever is pure, whatever is holy, whatever is good, think about such things. Jesus. You're not going to harbor the love of the world close in your heart when the love of God is overflowing. Please know that your only hope to find holiness in this life is to seek after Jesus. To really know him to understand how far he has gone for you and then just keep getting obsessed with him. Fall in love with Jesus. When we understand holiness in this right way, then we are released to engage this world. Daniel 2 and Daniel 3, we see two really messed up things going on in Daniel and his friend's new home, right? And it's Nebuchadnezzar, and he's a mess, right? He's an egocentric megalomaniac. The, the passage that Nathan read, the magicians and everybody are like, man, nobody said things like you. Nobody's ever been so arrogant. Right? Because he has some bad dreams. He's like, all right, guys, tell me about dreams. Come on. You're good. Tell me the dreams. Right? And they're like, eh, will you tell us the dream? We'll interpret it. Nope. I'm going to rip your arms off. I'm going to burn your house down. Tell me the dream. Come on. Right? <laughs> and we didn't read further, but Daniel catches wind of this. And Daniel, while we did read this part, courageously walks in and says, God, or says, King, give me an appointment. Put me on the schedule. I'm going to come in and tell you the dream interpretation. Right? Whoa. Whoa. That's guts. Right? Because what's going to happen if this dream doesn't get told to the king? They're all dead. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they're all toast. Them and all the magicians. And so then Daniel says, I'll do it. And he comes back to the house, talks to his roommates. It's like, guys, it's prayer night. Let's hit our knees. We're dead. Unless God does something. Right? And then our, our, our call to worship this morning was some of Daniel's worship to God after God had revealed the vision to Daniel. And then Daniel walks in and tells the king the dream. And he tells the king the interpretation. And we're not going to interpret all that. It's really cool. It's basically a history story. Uh, Daniel, or the dream, and Daniel's interpretation of the dream tells the future of how the kingdoms are going to unfold until the kingdom of God comes to the earth. It's really, really cool. And so in that dream, Nebuchadnezzar saw a big statue, right, basically. And it's crazy. You turn the page to chapter 3. Just after, Nebuchadnezzar's like, man, Daniel, you got the stuff, kid. Like, I'm putting you in charge. You the bomb. You know it all. You're really wise. You're pretty cool. Then he responds in, verse, in chapter 3 by doing what? It makes a big statue. <laughs> He's like, God told me in this dream that I was the head of the statue made of gold, but I've got an idea. Let's make a whole freaking statue out of gold. That'd be awesome. And then everybody will know how amazing I am. And we'll play some music. The harp, the lyre, the like 
verse, chapter 3, they say the same instruments over and over again. The horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music. Let's, let's party, party. And when we do, everybody's got to bow down and worship my idol. And if they don't, we'll tear up their arms and we'll burn down their house. Right? See, I'm like, it's the same thing that happens again. Now, in chapter 3, we don't see Daniel's name, but we see his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're not sure why. Maybe Daniel's on vacation, or maybe he's just kind of at a higher position that he doesn't get pulled into this whole thing. I'm not sure what happens. It's just, he's just gone. Okay? We do know that he's not bowing down to the altar and worshiping. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what do they say? They say, I'm not going to bow down and worship that idol. Right? And so, ultimately, the king says, okay, you're dead men. Let's heat up the fire. He calls in the Marines to bring the guys over to the fire. The Marines all die because the fire is so hot. And what happens inside? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are just chilling walking around with a man that looks like the Son of God. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, get him out of here. That's unbelievable. Like, clothes aren't even singed. And they say, we've got to worship their God. Everybody worship the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So in these two stories, butted up right up against each other, we see two different engagements by Daniel and his friends. The first story... We see Daniel get some guts and engage in what's going on, right? He digs in. He says, I'm going to be involved. It's, gonna, it's, it's probably going to cost me my life, but I'm willing to give it to save other people. And he steps in to engage in what's going on. In the second story, we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego look at what's presented to them and saying, I will have nothing to do with it. No engagement. I will not bow down and worship another idol. My heart's worship is given to the God of Israel and him alone, right? And so we see two responses to both pretty messed up situations, right? Nebuchadnezzar in both situations is like, I'm going to kill people, rip off their arms, and burn down their houses, right? It's a mess. They're both a mess. And Daniel jumps into one willingly, is used by God in participation to save other people, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do not engage in the other one. And what happens? Saved by God. Preserved in their faithfulness, and ultimately glory goes to God. See that? In both stories, there's different engagement. So we have that before us. We have a culture that says, this is the mess, now come in. Here's what you should be involved in. In some places, we should run right into it. Right? At the cost of our own lives, possibly. And engage that mess for the sake of seeing people saved. In some situations, we should stand back and say, I'll have nothing to do with it. To be faithful to God in this moment means to not participate. So here I stand. Throw me in a pit of fire if you want. God will save me or God won't up to him, but I'm not going to do it, right? And so here's the really, really practical part of our day, and that is that we engage the world through these different filters, okay? And I want to give you three filters, and hopefully this will help us to understand how to continue to live in this world. <clears throat> the three filters or lenses through which we should uh, filter our engagement are this, Acceptance, rejection, and redemption. Okay? When the world, when the culture is engaging in the things it engages in. Now we talked about last week. Sometimes that's outright sin and hideousness and rebellion against God. And sometimes, because of common grace, it's good stuff. Right? It, it's cool. It's, it's uh, benign, so to say. Right? It isn't necessarily against God or for God. It's just there. It's a thing. And so we have to filter then the, 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 the manner in which we conduct ourselves in this world. We have to filter then. Do we do, like Daniel, and engage? Or do we do like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and pull back? Okay? And so here's the three filters. Exception, rejection, and redemption. Number one exception is where we would participate in the culture because participation with the culture would not lead us away from faithfulness to God. Okay? 
So we're free in some instances to just buy into it, to, to go ahead and participate, to be a part of what's going on because it's not leading us away from faithfulness to God. Now we have to always pay close attention to the deceitfulness of our hearts and understand that sometimes even good and benign things can turn to us into idols and stuff that we would worship. So we, we've got to be careful. We can't just be mindless. But there are many things in this world, right? So one of these examples is your job. Work. Of course. Right? I mean, unless you're like, you know, selling drugs and trafficking humans, like, work. Go ahead and work. You totally dive into that idea. So that would be the acceptance. Rejection would be where participation in the culture leads to sin and unfaithfulness. There are things in this world that are sold to you and you're being told, man, it's all good. Don't worry a thing. Just enjoy yourself. Jump on in, right? You are being told those things and they are sin. And you need to say, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, nope. Not going to have any part of that. Even if it makes me look kind of weird, right? Even if people ask a lot of questions about it, even if it costs me a bit of extra money or a promotion or some extra comforts, I will not participate in it. And then the redemption aspect, and I think this is where we are in desperate need from people who love and follow Jesus. This is where participation in the culture needs to be wisely altered to redeem aspects of the world. There are some things in the world that are pretty messed up, but we should not stop engaging in them. We should actually move into them, like Daniel did the whole dream scenario. We should move into them and seek faithfulness to God in them and try, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the wisdom he gives us, to redeem the messes of the world. And to take things that are blown out of proportion in sinful ways and to pull them into the faithfulness of God and to say, this can be done in a way that honors God. Daniel was able to engage in the dream interpretation in a way that honored God, right? So some really practical things. The acceptance thing. I talked about work already. Food is probably one of these. Recreation is probably one of these. Yeah, go do it. The world says it's good, and it, and it is good. Food's great, right? Coffee's good. Running, biking, lifting, whatever you're doing, swimming. Just, yeah, it's great. Jump in. Do it. Right? With minds and hearts on God the whole time. Thank you, God, that I get to recreate. Thank you, Lord, for this food. I mean, that's the whole point of praying for your food. It's just being like, man, God, you, we get to eat cows and pigs and leaves and carrots rather than sand and dust and bugs. You're good. You know? Like, that's grace. And so we're reminded in the participation of the thing, we're reminded of the faithfulness of God. Rejection, there's a lot of things probably that should just be rejected outright. Some of them were listed in what we read in 1 Corinthians um, earlier by Paul. Greed is something we should just reject outright. The world tells you, go get it. Go get as much as you can and just pile up the bank account and store it all for yourself. I mean, the commercials that the investors put out there, it's not about the money you make, it's about the money you keep. That's a, that's a non-biblical concept. It's not in the Bible. Right? Storing up money to be faithful to your future generations is absolutely in Scripture, but to hoard it all for yourself, it's unbiblical. To be faithful to give and steward what God has given you, that's a biblical idea. We reject greed. Right? Porn is one of these things. There is no redeeming quality in porn. Right? If you were watching the news this week and you saw the trial with the gym, uh, gymnasts and that uh, medical examiner, that's where porn goes. Like, dude, guys, every click is another human sold. It hurts, but it's true. The reason we're in the mess that we're in right now, <sighs> right? It's that we celebrated that Hefner punk at all blows my mind. And then at the same time, we're hashtag me too because we're pissed at what's happened in the world. Well, guess why we're where we're at? 
because we bought in that that's healthy and normal and good. It's not flat out completely rejected. And please, that's not condemning. I've struggled through porn issues. If you're there, let's talk. Please seek help. You're ruining your marriage or your future marriage or the relationship you could have with all of the precious daughters of God that should be sisters to you. You're ruining it by your participation in that. We should reject it. We should reject racism and sexism and classism. We should outright reject these things. Amen. And then the opportunities for redemption are plenty. So I say we reject porn, but we do not reject sex. We seek to redeem it. We seek to follow Jesus in it. And so we wait for marriage. And then we pursue one another in faithfulness to God and enjoyment of the gift that he's given us. We redeem that mess. And we don't stand up with a judgmental and arrogant attitude as we look down our noses at the world. We sit in sympathy with them, understanding where they're hurt and broken and saying, come, there's a better way. There's wholeness and there's healing and there's beauty here. You just do it. Do it as God has called us to do. Amen? We do this with work. We do this with art and sport and entertainment. We don't reject those things. We redeem them. We move into those fear, those fears with an understanding of the gift that God has given them to us, and, and we enjoy them. We redeem them. We participate them. For what purpose? To bring honor and glory to God. We jump into the class like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel do, and we excel at the class, and we become one of the best. Why? So that honor can be given to God through it. We jump into that through our work. We do that with our families. We do that in our city as we see, man, this place is just ripe and ready. It's in the midst of being rebuilt. Jump in, let's rebuild. Let's do that. And let's redeem that mess and be a part of rebuilding towards a better glory rather than a self-centered glory that the city wants to seek for its own. We enter into the conversation. We say, hey, man, we're making decisions that are, that are going to train wreck us in the long time. Let's move towards selflessness. Let's move towards remembering the poor and fighting against injustice. Let's move toward those things. Let's get in and redeem that mess. And as we engage in these things, the doors that open for the fame of God are glorious. Heck, man, th those doors can even open when we do the rejection thing, like we saw with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As we walk in wisdom through this filtering process of accepting, rejecting, and redeeming, God's glory is ripe and ready to be seen. And so let's step into it. We have the completed work of Jesus that's been given to us and gifted to us so that we know we are his while we get to run in to this mess and be a part of what God's doing. It's a difficult thing. It often requires a lot of nuanced thought and wisdom, and that's why we do it together, right? You don't do this solo. You don't run in like a renegade. Run in with the wisdom of counsel around you. Open your life to allow people to say, hey, I, I know what you're trying. I think it's good, but is this okay? And, and let them ask that. It's, it's tough and it's vulnerable, but it's healthy. And it brings honor to God as we do that. So I pray God would advance us towards uh, making his kingdom known as we engage in this culture. So I pray you find Jesus leading you to a beautiful life of humility and courage. And that the love of God would capture your heart so as to lead you away from the love of this world. And I pray that the love of God for sinners like you and me would lead you to courageously seek the redemption and the renewal of the world around you. That's what it means to be faithful and free in this culture. Let's pray. God, we are in need of great wisdom from you. And uh, we just pray that you would train us in your ways and that we would be rooted and established in the truth of the gospel and what Christ has done for us so that we know what it means to walk 
toward holiness and also to engage in this world. God, train us in time to recognize and to be aware of just the different opportunities that we have to engage in this world. Or for a lot of us, the deepest engagement we'll ever get is in our workplaces. And so we pray that, Lord, you would help to redeem those places. You'd give us wisdom and courage in the midst of a world that is foggy, God, to see things clearly and to be able to walk in speaking your truth and living in light of what you've done for us. God, we hope and, and ache and yearn for a world in which we do not have to do this labor, to a world that just is functioning right, but we know that world is not yet here. And so, God, we pray that the little life that we have, that you would use us to move toward that ultimate vision of heaven, that you would put together broken lives, that you would redeem messes, God, that you would reconcile people to yourself, that the glory of Jesus would be seen as we wisely navigate the times. Help us, Jesus. We're desperate for you. We pray all this in Christ's name.